October 20th, 1943, Warsaw, Poland. Young Polish social worker, Irena Sendler, is finally celebrating a rare day off, relaxing in her apartment with her colleague Janina, her beloved aunt, and her ailing mother. Laughter fills the small apartment when suddenly a violent commotion erupts outside. Irena peers out her window. A dozen Gestapo swarm outside her building. She knows why they've come. Irena turns to the kitchen table where a roll of tissue paper sits with tiny pencil markings, hundreds of names. Irena's eyes ignite. That paper represents life and death. It's also incriminating, which means get rid of it, fast. Her eyes dart to the window, but two Gestapo stand guard outside. She can't toss it down to the garden below. Footsteps pound up the stairwell. Suddenly, there's no time. Irena grabs the tissue paper and tosses it to Janina, who shoves it under the crook of her arm. The two women don't even look at one another. A split second later, Nazi Gestapo burst into her apartment, demanding to know where Irena is hiding the children. Irena stays silent. She looks down at the floor. Gestapo fan out through the apartment. They rifle through her drawers, closets, cabinets, clothing, nothing. The commander barks orders to his soldiers. He narrows his eyes at Irena, suspicious. Little does he know, the evidence he seeks is right under his nose. For scribbled on that tissue paper, are the names and locations of hundreds of Jewish children that Irena is hiding to escape Nazi deportation. Frustrated, the Gestapo grab Irena. They forcefully march her out. She doesn't dare say goodbye to her mother or even look at Janina. Irena knows she can't call attention to them. She needs to keep that list safe and as far away as possible from the Gestapo. Irena Sendler will not let the Nazis discover a single name. Her mission is to protect these children at all costs. I'm David Weil, creator and executive producer of the series Hunters on Prime Video. I was inspired to create the series because of my grandmother, Sarah Weil, a Holocaust survivor. When I was young, my softest started telling me the stories of her experiences during the war. To me, her heroism felt like the stuff of comic books and superheroes. During one of the darkest, most horrific periods in human history, there were ordinary people who made the choice to resist, standing up and fighting for the common humanity of their fellow people, doing what many of us would consider impossible. Hunters is inspired by the heroism of survivors like my grandmother and of heroes and resistors like these. The stories you're about to hear are true. And the words and many of the voices you'll hear belong to the heroes, survivors, their families, and friends. This is Chutzpah. Hunters presents True Stories of Resistance. And this is The Guardian. Irena Sendler was born in Poland in 1910 to liberal and politically engaged parents. Her father, her personal hero, was a member of the Socialist Party of Poland, whose platform supported civil rights and equality for all minority groups, including the Jewish community. 
It was a party that opened its doors to many Jewish members, which stood in stark contrast to the rest of Europe, where fascism and anti-Semitism was on the rise. Unfortunately for Irena, childhood tragedy struck early. Her beloved father, a physician who worked treating typhus patients, died of typhus when she was seven. Despite others' reluctance to risk their lives, her father refused to stop treating the sickest of patients, which ultimately cost him his life. His death forever altered the trajectory of Irena's life and deepened her commitment to his political philosophy. Irena shares in her own words. My father's death affected me deeply. He loved me very much, and he brought me up with very progressive principles. These were pure upbringing principles applied by both my father and my mother. I was taught that people are either good or bad, that religion or origin is not important. And the second principle is that if somebody is in need, you have to stretch your hand out. When Irena's father passed, it was the Jewish community that sought to take care of her and her mother, even though they were not themselves Jewish. Professor of History and Chair in Holocaust Studies at Yeshiva University, Joshua Zimmerman, explains further. The Jewish community, they were mourning, they had such high esteem for this physician, and they offered the Sendler family to raise funds to help now this widow with a daughter. And this is something that Irena Sendler says. She says, quote, mother was deeply moved, but turned down their offer. Even in father's lifetime, Irena said, the Jews showed us great sympathy and gratitude for the fact that he treated so many of our community. In the late 1920s, Irena enrolls in college at Warsaw University. Though she initially studied law, Irena quickly realizes her true passion is helping others. Much like her father, Irena finds herself drawn to helping the poor and disadvantaged, particularly children. So she ends up taking a couple gap years and she decides to work in a place called the Mother and Child Aid section of a committee that was for social help. She derived a lot of satisfaction from that, helping those in need, especially children. And then she returns in the 1930s to the university in the Faculty of Humanities. And she goes for a master's. And that's when, in 1937 and 1938, the ghetto benches were decreed. In 1937, three major Polish universities begin the practice of a ghetto bench law. This forces Jewish students to sit in the back of classrooms on benches or stand in the last two rows. It's a system of segregation and humiliation and even leads to three Jews being killed on university campuses between 1937 and 1938. To Irena, this was a violation of everything she had been taught. So when the ghetto bench laws were passed, Irena insists on sitting with the Jews in the back two rows standing in what Poles call Solidarnosk, solidarity. 
At the time, there were many political fights at the university. I joined the Democratic Youth Union and tried to help my Jewish girlfriends who were being beaten and persecuted by other students. This support costs Irena dearly. The rector of the university somehow got notification that this non-Jewish student is insisting on supporting the Jews instead, and he actually wouldn't let her take exams to sit for the master's degree. He did it as retribution for her open opposition to the ghetto benches. Luckily, by 1939, Irena manages to bypass the administrator and gets her master's in humanities. She begins work in the social welfare department of the city of Warsaw. Hitler invades Poland in September of 1939. Within weeks, the entire country is invaded by both the Nazis and the Russians. The Polish government collapses and the Nazis take control over the central and western region, while eastern Poland is under the control of Russia. Immediately, the Nazis begin severe restrictions on Jewish citizens' movement in the cities, especially Warsaw. They begin to introduce laws, stripping Jews gradually um, in Poland of all their rights. The objects of violence is really the ethnic Polish community because they are targeted for a type of destruction of the educated elite because they want to eliminate the possibility of a Polish resistance movement arising. Irena herself speaks to this. When the Nazis invaded Poland, our streets were flooded with blood, and the Jewish people were drowning in a sea of blood, especially the children. One of the first orders issued by the Germans was that all Jewish employees were to be removed from their official jobs with the city and from the council that helped the poor to survive. We couldn't agree with that. So I organized among the people that I most trusted. So we started to falsify municipal documents, giving Jewish people documents with Polish names to save them. But this protection doesn't last long, as further designation is soon forced upon them. A law is passed requiring all Jews to wear a star, a law of discrimination, dehumanization, and segregation. Then, in the fall of 1940, a large Jewish ghetto is abruptly erected in Warsaw. Warsaw has the largest Jewish population in Europe at this time. Here again is Professor Zimmerman. They took 1.3 square mile area, which was formerly part of the Jewish section of Warsaw. They drew a boundary around it, it erected walls, and then they crammed into that space initially 380,000 Jews. So in other words, when the border and the walls were sealed, which is at the end of November 1940, all the Jews of Warsaw had been forced to relocate inside this ghetto. Now, what we also know is that they decreed the dissolution of small Jewish communities in the suburbs of Warsaw. And so that meant that by March of 1941, 
an additional 70,000 Jews literally were added to the ghetto. So that meant that at the very height, we think that there were as many as 450,000 Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto in this area of 1.3 square miles. And at this point, there was an average of over seven persons per room in every apartment in the Warsaw Ghetto. Irena and her colleagues were still able to carry out their jobs as social workers for the Warsaw community. But to work with Jewish clients or patients, this now meant crossing a dangerous checkpoint into and out of the ghetto. However, it was only a matter of time before Irena and her fellow social workers were banned from entering the Warsaw ghetto altogether. When the ghetto was closed, I had three reasons to get inside. First of all, I was led there by my heart. Second, I needed to go there to find the people that I had been looking after before the war. And the third reason was that the people there were my friends. Irena's spirit and drive cannot be stopped by Nazi ghetto walls. Having learned from her father that there are no legal or ethical divisions when it comes to helping others, Irena is determined to find a doctor who will sponsor her to get special permission to enter the ghetto as a social worker handling infectious disease patients. So, I organized my girlfriends, and I asked Dr. Malkowski, who was a member of the same socialist party with me, and was a doctor who was responsible for looking after the epidemic situation in the ghetto because the Nazis were very much afraid of epidemics. So his team could get special passes to go into the ghetto. And he put me and my girlfriend on the list of people who were entitled to go into the ghetto. And we started to go there. The first time I went into the ghetto, I was shocked. There were people crowded there. People had been driven there from small towns around Warsaw. So there would be many people crowded into one small apartment. There were more and more persecuted. Their food rations became smaller and smaller. People started to starve, and the Germans were very cruel to the Jewish people. The Nazis start prohibiting employment, or exit, for the Jewish prisoners inside the ghetto, forcing them to rely only on the Nazis for food. The Jews in the ghetto were allotted just 300 calories per day, one-fifth of the nutrients needed per day to survive. Irena's heart breaks. She has never seen this level of poverty, disease, and malnutrition before. The Nazis are starving the Jewish people. This was all part of a larger, coordinated plan. If the Nazis could say that the Jewish community died of disease or starvation, as opposed to violence, it would make their plan of control over Europe seemingly more acceptable to the rest of the world. But this was not the worst of Hitler's plan, for the worst was yet to come. In January 1942, he convenes all representatives of the German government at a villa outside of Berlin called Von C. And there is presented the overall comprehensive plan for the extermination of European Jewry. That's 
Mind you, this is top secret. Nobody knows about this. It's entirely unprecedented that any state would move towards the physical annihilation of a civilian population, but also an entire people. So nobody's really kind of conceiving of this. But meanwhile, 80% of Jews in in Nazi-occupied areas of Eastern Europe are inside ghettos. And that's when they decree that they're going to use industrialized killing centers to murder the whole of European Jewry. Irena has been working round the clock as a social worker in unfathomable conditions of disease, starvation, and death. She refuses to stop entering the ghetto checkpoint, even as the risk has exponentially multiplied. But in the fall of 1942, after the U.S. has now joined the Allies, the Nazis become more aggressive. There's an even greater existential threat spoken only in whispers. Disappearance of whole families. Deportation. Annihilation of the entire Jewish community. Only the Nazis won't call it annihilation. So they use the word resettlement action. And so what they told is, uh, we are resettling the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto to a place in Ukraine, which is now liberated, they say. It's, there are going to be family camps. Uh, there'll be no prison uniforms. There'll be much more foodstuffs. And they even, to continue the deception, gave them a list of items that Jews should take with them because you're going to be traveling for about two days. And this was a way of deceiving them into thinking that um, this may be a good thing. Irena and her colleagues see right through this deception. They know that deported Jewish families are being led to their deaths. Time is of the essence for Irena to evacuate as many families and children to safety as possible. One pivotal event for Irena became the tipping point. On August 5th, 1942, Janusz Korczak, a famous child psychologist known as the Mr. Rogers of Poland, 12 members of his staff, and 200 orphanage children were deported to the Treblinka concentration camp. Mary Skinner, a documentary filmmaker who spent months with Irena and recorded the last long interview with her, explains. Irena Sundler witnessed all the children in Janusz Korszak's orphanage being marched to the freight yard where the deportations were taking place. Korszak had prepared the children and told them that they would be going on a journey, a vacation. And they had these little dolls that were made by this professor who had lived outside the ghetto and sent these dolls in. And they were to carry those dolls and they were to wave the flags of Palestine and Poland. And so everyone in the ghetto saw those children marching with their little backpacks and their dolls and the flags with their teacher and put on a train and sent to a death camp. This vision of innocent children given a send-off even as they are marched to their death became too much for Irena to bear. When she saw that, she almost died. She almost had a heart attack, literally. And anyone else who witnessed it was so horrified that they decided we have to band together and do whatever is possible to save these people. And that's when they became really, really insistent on getting children out. Irena and her like-minded confidants are now relentless. 
doubling their efforts in smuggling children to safety. What once was a mission of care soon became a 24-7 mission of survival. As soon as Irena secured permission from parents, arrangements were made for the children's safe transport outside the ghetto. But Irena took it a step further. She personally promised mothers she would return their children to them, painstakingly writing down and keeping each and every child's record, considering it her own personal responsibility. In Irena's mind, there is no other option. Just as her father had taught her, if somebody is in need, you help. It was only a matter of how. Very soon, we realized that the only way to save the children was to lead them out of the ghetto. So me and my co-workers organized four ways of taking children out of the ghetto. There was a sanitary van that entered the ghetto every day. And at a certain pre-designated point, they would pick up a child in a box. This worked especially well for infants. Irena smuggled babies to safety this way, handing them off directly to someone just outside the ghetto. Another way was to take children through the courthouse, which had entrances on both sides of the ghetto wall. A trusted bailiff there would serve as our lookout and guide from the entrance on the ghetto side to the exit on the Aryan side. Another way was through the tramway that went through the ghetto. One of our girlfriends had a husband who worked on the tramway, and he was taking children out through the tramway. Another was that some houses were connected to the Aryan side through secret passageways in the basements, and we could lead children through them and out to the Aryan side. Irena, with the help of her network of colleagues, is risking her life for the safety of these children. With each passing day, the pressure to help desperate Jewish families escape intensifies. For Irena and her compatriots, it was clear. The Nazis would stop at nothing less than utter destruction. To make matters more difficult, Irena's motives start to be questioned. The Nazis are suspicious of her role, no longer believing she is part of a medical team helping reduce epidemics in the ghetto. They begin to suspect she is helping Jewish families escape. Now under scrutiny, Irena knows that she'll need a great deal more help to continue her efforts. But who else can she trust? <laughs> One of my girlfriends, who worked with me, one day said, I know that you are helping the Jewish people. There is a special organization that is formed to provide assistance to the Jewish people. I'll give you the code to use. Go to this address and say the code name, and they will let you in. The organization is called Zhigota, a council initially founded by liberal Catholics which eventually becomes a unique coalition of Jews and non-Jews from a wide range of various political movements. Here again is Mary Skinner. This group of people 
who had been doing various of these activities, providing medical care, providing false papers, providing legal services, taking care of properties, taking care of children, taking care of mothers, all came together and formed this underground organization, which they called Jagota, which is just a made up name. It was a code name. They used it so that they could say if they were ever asked or if they were ever asked under torture, what were you doing? They could say, I was going to a meeting with Conrad Jagoda. And that was their answer. I was going to a meeting with Conrad Jagoda. With fearlessness and conviction, Irena goes to the address given and asks to meet with their leader, Chairman Julian Grobelny, codename Trojan. So I found myself in front of Trojan in the autumn of 1942, who was the head of Zhigota. And I told him what me and my girlfriends were doing to try and save people from the ghetto, but that we needed money. And he said, we have a good business here because you have good people, and I will have money from the representatives of the government in exile. So I replaced a girl who couldn't work for Zhigota anymore because she had to care for a small child. What were the benefits of working with Zhigota? It was of great moral significance because the Jewish people knew there was somebody looking out for them and helping them. So that was very important. Once partnered with Zhigota, Irena expands her efforts to match the intensity of the great deportations. Under the codename Yolanta, Irena doubles her network, reaching out to additional families and smuggling dozens of children right past the Nazis. There were others of her co-workers who were taking out three, four, five babies a day, carrying them out in boxes, toolboxes, putting them on garbage trucks that drove in and out of the ghetto, or putting them on the trams that went in and out of the ghetto. This group of women had a lot of allies, so mostly they were civil servants. All of the Warsaw civil servants, by the way, was pretty much participating in the resistance. So the tram drivers, the sanitation workers, people in the social services department, all of them were doing things under the noses of the Germans. They were risking their lives, but by that time it was pretty desperate. As time went on, conditions became more desperate and their work became more furious. They had more and more of these children and the need for things like false papers, false baptismal certificates, because the children had to be given new identities in order for them to survive outside the ghetto. But the obstacles Irena and her network face are relentless. Each mission demands constant precision and ever-evolving ingenuity. They would pick up a child in a box, and of course, the children were crying because they were closed inside. And one morning, the driver of the cart said to me, Yolanta, my codename was Yolanta, I can no longer do that job for you because the children are crying, and the Germans will hear them and find out what I'm doing, and I'll be arrested. So I said to him, Antony, please try and find a solution. So one day he came to me and said, 
Yolanta, I think I have discovered a way to mask those children's cries when we go through the ghetto gates. I have a very bad dog, and when we are going through the checkpoint, the dog will bark and mask the child's cries. While Irena increases the rate of evacuations of children, the underground resistance movement steps up its own efforts. This culminates in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the first coordinated attack against the Nazis. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising produces a brutal response from the Nazis. They start going house to house, dragging out Jewish families and deporting them directly to the camps. Then, they light the ghetto on fire. Barely sleeping, Irena identifies new hiding places for the children in additional Catholic convents and private homes, guaranteeing the children's own safety with her own life. Irena and her team work round the clock, evacuating children daily as their parents fight desperately to survive. Irena devises her own method to keep track of the children. People working in the underground had different ways of hiding things. Some people would hide things behind a wall, or behind the furnace, or under the floor. The Germans knew about those methods, so I knew that none of those methods would work. So I came up with something else. There had to be some trace of those Jewish children and where they were hidden, so that they could be returned to their community one day. So this was all written down on pieces of tissue paper, which were rolled up. These rolled-up tissues were referred to as grips. So my idea was not to hide the roll behind a wall or behind a furnace, but every night before I went to sleep, I left it on the table in the middle of the room in front of the window, which was facing this little garden, and if anything happened, I would throw it out the window, and only one of my co-workers, Janina Grabowska, would know about it. As meticulous as Irena was about her systems of record-keeping, nothing can rival the astounding level of trust she built with each child and parent that she aided. You can imagine a social worker going into the ghetto in 1941, say, times are hard, but nobody knows what's coming, and telling a mother, let me take your child. It, this is not an easy conversation. Because of Irena's compassion and conviction, Many children recall details of the day Irena came into their lives. Here is Piotr Zettinger. Miss Irena was a good friend of my father's before the war. They worked together to help poor people. During the war, when we were in the ghetto, Miss Irena was on the other side. She was organizing my life, and I didn't even know. And Mikhail Glowinski. Miss Irena became friends to my family. I remember that she visited us. She kept all the documents of the children so that when their families come after the war, they will be able to find them. But after years of running a successful rescue mission, the inevitable occurs. The Nazis uncover the truth. Irena is not who she says she is. As we plunge back to where this episode began, on October 20th, 1943, the Gestapo enter Irena's home in Warsaw. 
searching for the list of all the children that she is hiding. The Germans came for me. And of course, I was trying to realize this plan that I had for years, and I wanted to get to the table to throw the list out of the window. But when I looked out the window, there were two Germans walking around out there. Eleven came to get me. Nine came upstairs, and two stayed outside. So my plan was out. And they were pounding on the door so hard that they almost knocked it down. I only had a second, so I threw the list to Grabowska. During the search, which lasted about an hour and a half, I did not look even once at Grabowska because I was afraid. But when I was arrested and leaving with them, I was sure that the list would not get into their hands. But this was all done in a very naive way by Grabowska. She didn't have time, so she just put it under her arm. And she was wearing her bathrobe. This was naive, because if there were men in the apartment, the Germans would have told everyone, hands up, and everyone would have to put their hands up, and the list would drop to the floor, right at the feet of those Germans. Now a prisoner herself, Irena is brought to Gestapo headquarters by the Nazis. I was taken to the Gestapo headquarters. And you have just to go to the museum and look at the closet with the instruments they used to torture people, to know how it was there. There were women guards, and they were torturing us. They did it of their own initiative. They interrogate her relentlessly. Who was getting money and who was getting weapons? Who was Conrad Chagoda and who else do you work with? What are you up to? She's taken to Paviak prison and there she's interrogated and tortured. Now, although in the course of this interrogation, they broke both of her feet and legs during the interrogation, Irena did not give up a single name or location of one child that she was saving or any of her co-workers. She didn't confess anything. She says that it was three months. She was with various other women in the underground and she saw horrible, horrible things being done to them. She saw many women being executed. She saw women being brought back to the cells. As she said in one of my interviews, beaten so badly that every piece of flesh on their body was just hanging from the bone. There was a resident dentist in Paviak prison, and one day Rana Sandler was summoned to go to the dentist. And she thought, I don't have anything wrong with my teeth. I don't have a toothache. I didn't complain of a toothache. Why am I being summoned to the dentist? So. She went to the dentist, and the dentist had her lie back. This woman, who was the resident dentist, was participating in the underground. She had her lie back in the chair, and she said, open your mouth, you have a big hole in your tooth. So she had her open her mouth, and she stuck one of these grips in Irena Sundler's tooth. Well, it was to give her some details and to tell her that, hold out, hold out, hold out. You know, they're working on it. They're working on it. They're going to try to, they're trying to get you out. Now, three months later, Irena Sendler was sentenced to death, but literally on the day 
that this execution was supposed to be taking place January 20th, 1944. The president of Shugota was able to rescue Irena by bribing the right people. She hobbled out, dressed in this kind of Paviak prison uniform, very obvious, but Fortunately, the Pavia prison is, is within inside the ghetto. By this time, the ghetto had been razed to the ground, but there were still like a few businesses and few residential buildings that were sort of on the borderline between what had been the ghetto and the Aryan side. And one of these buildings had a pharmacy and she happened to know that pharmacist. So she went to that pharmacist and she said, help me. And so they brought her into the back and they got her... Um, new set of clothes. They got her a new photo and a new identity card. And her new name was Anna Sadowska. And she spent the rest of the war under this alias, hiding out. She had to keep moving. And one of her saddest memories was that her mother died during that period. And there was a funeral for her mother in Warsaw. And she wanted desperately to go to that funeral, but she couldn't because she knew the Gestapo would be there looking for her. Irena Sedler spent the rest of the war saving as many lives as she could. Because of Irena and her unwavering network, approximately 2,500 children's lives were spared. Following the war, Irena devoted her life to seeing the mission through, rebuilding her country and keeping her promise to the parents of the children that she saved. She was very devoted to her profession. And after the war, all the whole group of them was very, very idealistic. They had all these dreams, you know, we're gonna repair the country, we're gonna feed everybody, we're gonna educate everybody, we're gonna take care of all these poor women who were in Auschwitz and became prostitutes afterwards. And that was one of her first missions. So she had a program that she was trying to help those women. and. They were getting together and compiling all their records and names of all these children and turned them over to the Jewish community uh, and trying to get those children reunited with their biological families. Irena never stopped thinking about these children whose lives she had been entrusted. Even when her own were born, her work as the guardian of the Jewish children in Warsaw never ended. Their faces were forever etched in her mind. I think she had a fantasy that she would become a mother, you know, that she would have this happy domestic life, that she would forget about the war and she would forget about her work. But she was so passionate about her work that she just couldn't stay away from it. If people needed her, she felt like she had to be there for them. So I think the thing to know about Irena Sundler is that this effort happened because of a group of people that risked their lives to save these children. And they all played very important parts in this whole network and system that they had developed to save their lives. But it would not have happened without Irena Sundler because it was Irena Sundler who mobilized all of these people and stuck with it and kept the thing in motion in the hardest times. On October 19th, 1995, Yad Vashem recognized Irena Sendler as righteous among the nations, the highest honor given by Israel to non-Jews who risked their lives to protect Jews during the Holocaust. The tree planted in her honor stands at the entrance to the Avenue of the Righteous. Countless new generations owe their lives to Irena's bravery. 
yet she does not consider herself a hero. She herself said in a printed interview, I only did what any decent person would do. The heroes were the babies. They were the heroes of their mother's hearts. It was the parents and grandparents who gave up their children. They were the true heroes. We honor the heroes of the past, heroes like Irena Sendler, by invoking their memory in the present. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I am so excited for you to check out the series Hunters, streaming on Prime Video. If you're interested in learning more about Irena Sendler, please visit irenasendlerfilm.com. I-R-E-N-A-S-E-N-D-L-E-R-F-I-L-M.com. Thank you to Professor Joshua Zimmerman, the National Endowment for the Humanities, Rick Trank, Judy Friedman, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and Northwestern University Press. Northwestern University Press provided excerpts from the book, The Last Eyewitnesses, Children of the Holocaust Speak. And a special thanks to Mary Skinner for providing Irena's interview, as well as audio from the rescued children we heard from. Biggest prize you could imagine. One more run. And everything that we have done will have been worth it. We can't do it alone, so where are your friends? Evil doesn't retire. So why should we? This has to be perfect, like clockwork. Join us. Hunters, starring Al Pacino. Executive produced by Jordan Peele. Stream now on Prime Video. This podcast was narrated by David Weil, creator and executive producer of Hunters on Prime Video. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, Stephen Hine, Natalie Williams, and David Weil. Produced by Netta Farshbaff, Keisha Center, and Sophia Williams. Written by Dorothy Kozak-Snoke. Voiceovers by Lily Sondick, John Henry Kraus, Jan Close, and Lake Wilburn. Voiceover casting by Daryl Eisenberg and Ali Beams. Associate producers are Rebecca Drucker and Hayda Holscher. Post-production and co-produced by Trey Booty. The podcast features the original theme and score from the second season of Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Chutzpah, Hunters Presents True Stories of Resistance, is produced by Prime Video, Monkey Paw Productions, and Story Mill Media.